Jesus spoke these words during his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Find this verse amazing when you consider some statistics. 80% or better, depending on what kind of day you're having here in Holt, you'll find in our community, about 80% of those people, maybe even more, will identify as Christians. Uh, in a recent Gallup poll, and you think, well, I, that might be a little inflated. Just Gallup is a pretty uh, respected uh, polling organization, and so is Pew, and both of them have very similar numbers. About 69% of all Americans identify as Christians. In fact, worldwide, there are 2.6 billion Christians in this world. Christianity is the world's largest religion. So when I think of that, when I think of what Jesus spoke here in the Sermon on the Mount, that more people will perish rather than being saved, it kind of makes you stop and wonder, why? Why is that? If so many people identify as Christians, then why are so few going to be saved? And I would say, put this in perspective. You can say, well, this is, this is looking into a future tense, right? No, this truth is the same as it was when Jesus spoke it, when he spoke it for us today and in the future. Few people will be saved, and why? In the same Sermon on the Mount, just a couple sentences down, Jesus mentions this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And clearly there are going to be people who identify as Christian and refer to Jesus as Lord, but Jesus isn't going to recognize them as his followers. And just to kind of put this into even more perspective. Well, are we, are we talking about the lost here? We're, we're talking about people who consider themselves Christian. Jesus shared this parable about ten virgins to illustrate, illustrate the spiritual readiness of the church when he returns. In the parable, of course, only half of the church is ready when he returns. I'm not going to read the whole parable. Just take the last part of the parable, the challenge to those who aren't ready for his return. Again, we're talking about Christians. We're not talking about non-Christians. Verse 10, Matthew 25, 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. There is a consistent warning. If you really go through the messages that Jesus spoke, what he shares, there is a consistent theme, a consistent message that you'll find throughout the Gospels that more people will perish rather than being saved. With so many people in our world identifying as Christian, what would cause people to walk down, who, who begin on a narrow path, to take a broad path that leads to destruction? And I think there are two main reasons why this takes place. Two main reasons. I'm sure there are others, but these are the good ones. Here, these are the big ones. Uh, number one, they were never on the narrow path to begin with. They're just never on the narrow path. These people claim to follow Jesus, 
but were never on the narrow path. They honored Jesus with their lips, but their hearts were never his. Number two, they looked for an easier path. They started out on a difficult path. They understood that Jesus said the path is narrow, the way is difficult. But over time, with that difficulty, they looked for a different path, an alternative path. And what they found is called convenient Christianity. Jesus made it clear from the outset of his ministry, anyone who wants to follow him, it will be a narrow and difficult path. The journey will not be easy, and it's for us to remain faithful to the end. Paul wrote uh, two letters to Timothy, and the second letter to Timothy, he kind of talks about the finicky nature of human beings in in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, Paul says, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come, and this is written to the church. This is not written to unbelievers. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth because, and, and turn, be turned aside to fables. And as it has been since the beginning of Christianity, Paul is writing this to the first generation of Christians. Since then and to this day, Christians tend to be finicky. And the greatest greatest threat to Christianity is not the devil. It is not false religions. It is not Islam. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians. Christians who settle for a compromised message because it's more convenient and it suits their personal desires. For example, if you want to find a church that teaches homosexuality isn't a sin, as long as it's a monogamous relationship, as long as it's in a legal marriage, you can find that church within 25-mile radius of this church. Uh, If you want to find a church that teaches once you've been saved and you've been forgiven of your sins, the consequences of your sins are irregardless because you've encountered grace, You can find that church in our community. Our community is no different than any other community. We have people who have itching ears. Our church is no different than any other church. We have people who have itching ears. And they want a a message that will scratch that itch. The leadership of our churches are made up of the same people. They They have an itch that needs to be scratched, so it's not hard to find a church that will scratch your itch. If you aren't grounded in God's word, if you aren't disciplined in your faith, it won't be long for you to become discontent in any church, and you'll start looking for someone who'll scratch your itch. Listen to what Paul writes in, in to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They, ha- they say that the resurrection has already taken place, and look what happens. And they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul mentions two men who were in this church spreading false teaching, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And as a result, these men were preaching false doctrine. People became enamored with it, and they departed from the faith, believing a message that is contrary to the truth. 
Church, it happens in churches every day. Since the beginning of the church, it has tried to help people to learn to be led by the Spirit rather than the flesh. But it's not easy. It's not easy. It sounds good, right? It sounds easy to be led of the Spirit but not by the flesh. But it's a whole different thing to put it into practice because this is the truth. The flesh is strong, and often our, our spirit is weak. Satan has no power, no power whatsoever to pull anyone off the path, the narrow path, following Jesus. He has no power to do it. Quite frankly, Satan doesn't have to use that kind of energy to get people off the right path. He doesn't have to waste that, that type of energy because we accomplish this ourselves. And we've been doing this since the Garden of Eden. All Satan does is he finds someone who is tempted, someone who is wounded, someone who is frustrated, someone who is misinformed, someone who is misled. The list goes on and on. And what he does is he misconstrues the truth of God's word to appeal to that person's desire. They got an itch. I know how to scratch it. What motivated mankind in the Garden of Eden? Imagine this. In a sinless, perfect environment. What motivates mankind to abandon their relationship with God? Well, it's the same thing that still motivates us to this day. Nothing's changed. Let's just go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning, crafty. He's deceitful than any other beast of the field which the Lord, had made, Lord God had made. <clears throat> and he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? You know, why are you talking to me? But no, she entertains it. Why? She's got an itch. She's already got an itch. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in that day, you eat of, its fruit, eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, that, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. What does Satan do? He does what he's been doing for a long time. He compromises God's word. He compromises God's word. He tells Eve exactly what she wants to hear. And if, if you aren't careful, church, you could get in this place where Satan will come and he'll just speak right into your heart, right into your, your mind, your hurt, your desire, what it is, and he'll just whisper a lie that is so sweet, so soothing, that it makes sense, and you're like, that's it. That's what I've been missing. He is a master of deception, and what does he do? He uses our desires against us. Satan sees us following Jesus on a narrow path. Sometimes we struggle because, again, Jesus said the path would be difficult. And we get on this path, and there's difficulties we encounter. If you try to live a godly life in this world, you will be persecuted by this world. And that doesn't mean that everyone's going to be laughing at you or making fun of you or, or trying to drag you down. No, this world will come against you. This world didn't get along with Jesus. Why should it get along with us? So if you have God in you and God, you're living a godly life, a spirit-empowered life, you try to live a godly life, it will come at you. And it will become difficult. And Satan sees you struggling in that moment. He goes, you know what? I know they got an itch. I know they've got an itch. I'm just waiting for the right time. And what does he do? He whispers something like this. Christianity shouldn't be this hard. 
being a Christian shouldn't be this hard. Some of you already have heard this before. Living a Christian life shouldn't be so demanding. Going to church shouldn't be a duty. Are you happy? Because God wants you happy. See, Satan gives a suggestion when our desires are the strongest, when we're at the weakest, when our flesh is strong and our spirit is weak and we take the bait. Whatever desires or frustrations we have, Satan will exploit them because he knows how to scratch our itch. Satan hasn't changed his playbook. If you think about it, isn't this what he did with Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness after he had fasted for 40 days of these weeks, he tried the same playbook against Jesus. Why? Because he knows that it works against mankind. And Jesus is fully God, but he was fully man. So if it worked with man, why would it work with him? What did he do every time? He corrupted God's word. He appealed to his flesh, but Jesus resisted. Church, all of us have this desire to be like God. Now, you may deny that, and that's fine. But I'll remind you of this. The next time you choose to disobey God, remember you chose to obey your desires. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness means you become a law unto yourself. When we directly disobey God's word, we're doing what mankind has done since the Garden of Eden. We're trying to be like God. Since the Garden of Eden, Satan has had this ability to deceive and to use our own evil desires to inspire us to find a more convenient path. Listen to what Jesus says to anyone who wishes to follow him. I mean, really listen to these words. Let them just soak in for it to your, to your spirit for a moment. In Matthew chapter 16, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires, that word desires has come up in several of the verses. I don't know if you've taken note of that. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? A majority of those who come to Christ don't have the desire to take up their cross and deny themselves. A majority of the people who come to Christ will do this. A majority of the people who identify as Christians will do this. I'll say the sinner's prayer. I'll get baptized. I'll believe a few doctrines. That's fine with me. I'll go to church when it's convenient, whatever. I'll do these things, but to deny yourself, to take up your cross to put your desires, to resist your desires, to put God first, and to follow Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, people will not do by and large. Only a few. Few are interested in denying themselves. Few are interested interested in exchanging all they have for what Jesus has to offer. What Jesus has to offer you, church, and I'm just going to be real clear about this, is a cross. Some of you are thinking I was going to say blessing. No, or eternal life even. No, he offers you first a cross because there has to be a death. You can't skip to the resurrection. One of the greatest lies Satan has told mankind is this, the subtle lie of humanism. 
And humanism is in every facet of our lives. You can find it in schools, you can find it in law, you can find it in our government, and you can find it in the church. The chief goal of humanism is this. It's the happiness of man. It's the happiness of man. Some of you are already, I can feel it. You want to push back just a little bit. You want to say, well, doesn't God want to make us happy? I would push back and say forcefully, no, it's not. It's not. Man's happiness is a byproduct of what God desires. And what God desires is this, glory. Happiness is not the prime product of our salvation. We're saved because of the glory of God. It glorifies him. We think it's all about us. We have such a selfish, self-centered view of this world. It's amazing. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And these questions only you can answer. Are you viewing God and salvation as an end or means? Are you a Christian because of what you can get out of the deal? Or are you a Christian because God deserves the glory? Because there's a big difference between the two. See, humanism is a lie perpetrated by Satan since the Garden of Eden. It's a lie, and it puts man at the center of it. It puts flesh at the center. It puts what you want, what you desire. It agrees with your flesh always. And we can't forget that sin destroyed our original purpose, church, our God-ordained reason for being. God created us and everything that's in this world, everything that exists for his glory. You can find it throughout the whole entire Bible, throughout the New Testament, throughout the, the Old Testament. You and I exist for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. Salvation is not a plan that God orchestrates for our happiness. Salvation is a plan that God orchestrates so that he gets glory. God in his goodness offers us salvation, but it's on his terms. Why is that? So he can receive glory, not us. Look at this, Romans 3.23, very familiar verse. But we only focus on one part of this verse. It's this part, for all have sinned, right? But what's the rest of it say? And fall short of the glory of God. We fall short glorifying God because we've all sinned. Sin has interrupted this. Sin has destroyed our purpose. Our purpose is to bring glory to God. We've quoted that verse so many times. We've overemphasized. We've all sinned. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the heart of that, we have to remember that we've fallen short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, we look at that and say, man, that looks good on my computer screen. It looks good on a Facebook post. It's, some, it's a nice little adage. It's an inspirational axiom. But its purpose is completely defined in that verse. God created us to bring him glory. Humanism has found its way to every facet of the church. And I believe this is where it begins. Right at the beginning, when you come to Christ, is where it's crept in the most. Why are so many Christians not going to endure the narrow path and follow Jesus? They won't endure a narrow path, a difficult path, because they were never on the path to begin with. Think about how we as a church try to appeal to people. We try to appeal ourselves and what we have, the message of God, to sinners in some selfish way. Like we're, we're selling them a used car. When you sell a used car, you don't tell about all the oil leaks. You don't tell about how it burns oil. 
You don't talk about the little rattle that's going on. You don't talk about the tire that's going flat because it's got three nails in it. No, you look at that paint job. Look at the interior. It's great. It's been a great car. I know I need to get rid of it real quick because it's not going to be a great car. You can't sell the gospel of Jesus Christ that way, church. Think about how we as a church try to appeal to the sinful desires of sinners in sharing the gospel. We say something like this, don't you? You don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, of course, every honest person is going to say, no, I don't want to go to hell. You don't want to go to hell when there's heaven to gain. If you want to go to heaven, just have your sins forgiven. Say this prayer. Say it in Jesus' name. You'll be saved. You know, I love the, the commercials that Franklin Graham has on Fox, but I hate them. Because they're incomplete. It's an incomplete gospel. Just say this prayer. L- listen, we leave some vital things out if we do that. We sim- oversimplify salvation to just a formula. To just getting it up here, we are messing people up. And we've been messing people up. We've been doing the same thing that Hymenius and Philetus did. Saying their resurrection's already taken place. It's no different. In fact, it's worse. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Well, how does the Father draw sinners to repentance? By the Holy Spirit. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. We read about this throughout the New Testament. The Holy Spirit does what? He brings conviction into our lives. But we don't want to talk about that word in today's presentation of the gospel. Conviction. Why conviction? Because conviction brings repentance. You cannot experience salvation Hear me, without the Holy Spirit. It's not a formula. Romans 8 and 9 is very clear, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, no one, now, excuse me, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, there are a bunch of different spirits. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Look at this. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He doesn't belong to God. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us to repentance. It's the Holy Spirit who transforms our lives into a new creation. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to stay on a narrow path when it's very difficult. If we try to circumvent the Holy Spirit, we are on the wrong path. This isn't a Pentecostal message. This is a Bible message. People begin their faith journey on the wrong path. It will be very difficult for them to change courses. Listen, why on earth, when I've been sold Christianity this way, just say the prayer, just believe, just be baptized, and I'm good. Why on earth, when I want to get on this path, when that path looks difficult, when that path looks narrow, when this path allows me to live how I want and go to heaven? Why would anyone in their right mind? And the answer is they won't, only by a work of the Holy Spirit, though. I'm telling you, it is, it is difficult for people to get off the wrong path and onto the right. What about repentance? What about repentance in today's presentation of God? Just, just say this prayer. Where is the call to repent in our modern presentation of the gospel? I mean, how can a person be saved if they aren't convicted they're a sinner? Now, you can say, anybody can say, well, everyone messes up. I've, no, it's more than a generality. I am a sinner who has sinned. It's not just, again, some quick little adage. It's not some little axiom. If a person isn't convicted over their sins, why, why repent? 
if they truly aren't convicted by the Spirit of God that they are a sinner, they will not repent. I don't care if they say, Father, forgive me, how many times? Lip service is different, church, unless it comes from the heart. Genuine repentance. Are we afraid to, to use the repent word to people? Are we afraid we're going to scare them off? If we call people to, to repent? So what do we do? We don't want to scare people off. And I know we might even feel a burden. I don't, I don't want to be responsible to share the gospel and push someone away. So what, what do we do? We're afraid to scare people away, call them to repentance. So what do we do? We offer them an easier path. You know why? Because humanism is so ingrained in us that we do this. We try to appeal to their desires. They got an itch. We need to scratch it. And so my, my, my motives are good, though. Your motives may be good in your desire, in your eyes, not in God's. So what do we do? We offer them an easier path. But it's not the same path Jesus offered them. If the Holy Spirit is drawing a person to repentance, you got the fish on the hook. Don't, don't back off then. If they feel convicted over this, they're coming, I've messed up or I'm going through something. Why would you short-circuit the work of the Spirit? Jesus said these words, I tell you the truth, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Church, we don't have to be mean. We don't have to be harsh. We don't have to be critical. We don't have to be judgmental when it comes to sharing the gospel, but we can't water it down. We have to share the truth. We can't allow any subtle lies of humanism to creep in. We can't water down the message. We can't lie to a person. You can't lie to a person and say this, it is easy to become a Christian because that is a lie. And if you came to Christ and it was that easy, you may have bought into a lie. It is not easy. It is not, it is not simple. It's not just a matter of saying a prayer. It means deny yourself, carry your cross, follow Jesus. Jesus said it would be difficult and few would endure. He gives a great example here in Scripture, Matthew chapter 19. Verse 16, now behold, one came to him and said, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He wants to work his way to heaven right now, you could tell. And I don't, notice this, when Jesus shares these commandments, it's just the ones that pertain to man, not to God. He's already setting him up. Have you ever noticed that? There's 10 commandments but Jesus only mentions the, the six that pertain to man, not the four that pertain to God. There's a reason for it, because he summarizes it here at the end. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to Jesus, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and to love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, from my youth, what do I still lack? Wrong question, if you don't want to change. The young man said to him again, I've kept these things from my youth. What do I lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But the young man heard that saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now you can... You can take out the money and possessions and you can plug in anything else you want right there. Because this is what his greatest desire was. Jesus looks at the young man and he sees exactly what's sitting on the throne of his heart. 
He comes up with the facade of religion. I've done this, I've done that, and, and very well he has. He's been a very moral person, a very decent person. He has loved his neighbor as himself. I mean, that's half of the, the greatest commandment. But it's the other half that he's neglecting. And the other half he's neglecting is because this money is going to be more important than God. Jesus tells the man if he wants to become one of his disciples, he's giving him an invitation. You know, Jesus gave out those invitations pretty rarely, personally, to people. Come follow me. He's giving this man a personal invitation. You can be one of my followers. But Jesus saw what would hinder this man from following him. And it's this, his love for money, his love for possessions, that he would have his his peace, his comfort, his confidence in that wealth rather than God, that that money would get in his way from following Jesus. The, di- the way would become difficult, and at some point he says, you know what, this is more comfortable. This path is more comfortable. This path is difficult. Jesus is trying to spare him. You know, church, it's better to, to hit it right then because I believe this. If you share th- what Jesus shared with this man, he has an ability to respond to God later on. But if you share to him, you know, it's okay. God doesn't care about that. Just say this prayer. That money and that love for money is going to mess him up and send him to hell. And he would be doing that man no service. No service by appealing to this man's human desires. The man loves money. Money's going to keep him off the narrow path. Jesus shares it. He doesn't do it mean or hateful. Jesus looks at the man and says, you got it all together. You looked apart. You, you got great things going on. That's good. But there's one thing. There's one thing that prevents you from following me. There's one thing that, that keeps you from bearing your own cross, and it's this. It's your love for money. If Jesus were standing here this morning, if he was in our midst, if he's standing here this morning, and he would look at us, and he says, I, I want you to follow me. But there's one thing. What would that one thing be? What would be sitting on the throne of your heart? See, Jesus would be standing before you, and he has his nail-pierced hands. He's inviting you to follow him. What could you take off the throne of your heart and lay down at his nail-pierced feet? What would he ask us to abandon so we could follow him, and he knows us, we'd be on the narrow path, and we would endure to the end? And please hear me, I'm not saying this, you have to clean yourself up before you come to God. That's not what I'm saying. I am telling you this, whatever habit, whatever attitude, whatever sin, whatever sits in the place of influence and dominance in your life, if you'll lay that at the feet of Jesus and abandon your desire for it, you will be able to follow him. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you can endure with the the obstacles moved, without flesh removed, without your desires getting away, causing you to trip over things. You can follow him. I hope you're seeing the subtlety, that humanism that Satan has taken and just weaved it. He's weaved it into the modern-day presentation of the the modern church. See, God didn't create the heavens and the earth for man. God created the heavens and the earth for him, for his glory. The earth is his footstool. God didn't create the heavenly host in their glory. For their glory, he created them for his glory. God didn't create the, 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 anything that is in existence for anyone else but himself, for his glory. But we look at this through our eyes as it's made for us. There's too much me, myself, and I in the church. And unfortunately, it's not just today. It's been there for a long time. 
Let me ask you this. Why did you repent of your sins? Did you repent of your sins so you didn't go to hell? You say, well, that's pretty good motivation. Maybe not, though. Here's what I mean by that. Because there's a big difference between the two I'm going to show you. Did you repent of your sins so you didn't go to hell? Or did you repent of your sin because you knew you were a sinner and you deserved hell? There's a big difference between those two. Do you believe that God would be justified in allowing you to go to hell because of your sin? And see, if any one of us in here say no, I don't know what else to tell you. There's probably a church that will scratch your itch. But I can't do that. I'll look back over my life. And to be honest with you, before I came to Jesus, a lot of shame. You say, well, that's sad. No, I understand there's shame that weighs heavy into your daily life that shouldn't be there, but we should have some shame over our sin. I look back over my life, some of the things I did, I thought with, with trembling. I, I was a hell-deserving sinner. I don't have to be convinced of that. I knew that. I knew that God would be just in his righteousness to judge me. I repented of my sins because I had defied a holy God. I understood that. I was guilty of my sin. There's a difference between the two, church. Not wanting to go into hell and being guilty of your sin. Did you appeal to Christ because of what you could get out of him? Or did you appeal to Christ so that he could get something out of you? Paul writes this, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, when I became a Christian, I, 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 I didn't know anything about Christianity. What little I knew was from a couple, going a couple trips to church here and there with, with some people in the neighborhood and going to vacation Bible school once, but pretty much no knowledge. If you would ask me to name a disciple, I wouldn't be able to I thought Noah would be as much as a disciple as Peter. But I understand this. When Jesus came into my life, from the very beginning, I knew that I had been living life for me, and I, I couldn't do that any longer. So when I repented of my, my sins, I gave my life to Jesus. I remember doing this, and I meant these words, and I have not regretted them since. I remember surrendering my life to Jesus and saying those words, my life is yours. I understood that I've lived my life to this point for myself, and now I understand what that could bring, what damage I've done. I've, def I've, I've defy defiled a righteous God, so whatever you want out of me, that's what I'll do. Whatever you call me to do, that's what I'll do. Wherever you call me to go, that's what I'll go. Let me ask you this, and I'm not saying I'm perfect, please. But when you came to Jesus, did you come seeking what you could get out of the exchange? Or did you come seeking Jesus for mercy that you didn't deserve? Did you come to Jesus with a desire to exchange your selfishness for his glory? See, humanism says this, the chief reason for being is the happiness of man. Christianity says this, the chief reason for being is the glory of God. If your idea of Christianity, if you identify as a Christian, and you're on the, a narrow path, it, sh it should be difficult. It should be trying. It should test you. If it is easy-peasy, you might be on the wrong path. I'm not saying you have to go looking for, for trouble. You don't need to go look for problems. You don't need to do that. 
But if you have this, that when you, when you have a confrontation in your life with the Spirit of God, you're reading God's Word and there's a challenge, and you begin to try to live that out, if there's not some difficulty in adjusting that, what gospel have you believed? Are you doing everything for the glory of God? Or are you doing this? God, I want to live my life. I just need you to bless it. I want to go to heaven. You're on the wrong path. If you feel some conviction, please don't. Don't be embarrassed. Don't deny it. That's God's love reaching out to you. And you should respond by faith and some obedience, with some repentance. There's a story in the Bible that troubles me. It really troubles me because this happens in church all the time. It happens in altar calls. It happens in conversations. Paul's sharing his testimony with Felix. Felix is convinced. He's feeling conviction. He can feel the Spirit of God drawing him. And he goes, Paul, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? He goes, you know what? He's so troubled. He's so rattled. Here is a man of power and authority. Paul has an audience with this man. This man is feeling the conviction of God. He understands what Paul's saying. It's resonating with him. He understands that he's a sinner. He understands this Jesus that Paul is serving is real. What does he do? Away with you. I'll call you back for a more convenient time. There is no convenient time. There never was a convenient time for him. We never read about him getting saved. We never hear about him turning to God. Don't squander conviction. The time never came for Felix. Why, would it, why are we promised any different? You know why we feel this way? Because we feel like it's about us. And it's just more evidence of our own selfishness. God can wait. He'll, he'll always be there. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. Respond to him. Respond to him honestly and with faith. 